You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. What is the best method to diagnose and treat patients with suspected peripheral neuropathy? Joining us to discuss the latest treatments for chronic neuropathic pain and peripheral neuropathy is Dr. John England, professor and head of the Department of Neurology at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. Dr. England, welcome to ReachMD. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me to participate. Dr. England, how many people suffer from peripheral neuropathy? Peripheral neuropathy is a common problem. And in fact, the most common type of that, that we call distal symmetric polyneuropathy, affects about 1 in 50 people in the general population. And over the age of 55, about 1 in 12 people. So this is a reasonably common problem in the population. Is there a typical profile of a patient suffering from peripheral neuropathy? The typical profile of a patient with a polyneuropathy is the slow and gradual onset of numbness, tingling, and often pain in the toes and the feet that then slowly ascends or goes up the leg in a gradual fashion. And as it increases in its distribution, it may actually affect the fingertips and the hands and may involve weakness, particularly weakness in the feet and weakness in dorsiflexing the feet and toes, meaning raising the toes and feet. So that's the common pattern, a slow onset of numbness, tingling pain, and weakness in the legs with perhaps even gradual onset to the hands. John, can you tell our listeners some of the common causes of polyneuropathy? Well, by far and away, the most common cause of neuropathy in the world is diabetes mellitus. And as we all know, there's an epidemic of diabetes, and so the associated diabetic neuropathy is now even more common. Other causes are nutritional deficiency, alcohol abuse, or other toxins. We certainly see neuropathy quite a bit in patients treated with chemotherapy for cancer because these agents often do cause a little bit of neuropathy. And increasingly, we're recognizing nutritional deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, and autoimmune problems where the body since antibodies or nerves are actually attacked by the human body itself. Well, when a patient presents to you with this typical profile of peripheral neuropathy with the same complaints and you're getting this in the history, how do you go about diagnosing it? The diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy should really be made in steps. And as in all medicine, the first step is to listen to the patient to take their complaint and do a detailed medical history. This should be followed by a neurologic examination, and we recommend a complete examination neurologically, but certainly focusing on the peripheral nervous system. And then in most cases, we recommend confirmation of the presence of neuropathy using electrodiagnostic tests, what we call EMG and nerve conduction studies. So those are the first steps in the clinical diagnosis of neuropathy. When doing the electrophysiologic studies and looking at it, does that help you differentiate between the types of neuropathy? And more importantly, does it help you be somewhat predictive regarding the polyneuropathy? Electrodiagnostic tests are very helpful in subclassifying the type of neuropathy. Certainly, as we talked about, the most common 
type of neuropathy is a distal symmetric polyneuropathy, but patients can have mononeuropathy multiplex where one big nerve is affected right after another, or they can have relatively isolated mononeuropathies. And sometimes these things are a little hard to distinguish from one another, so an EMG and nerve conduction study can tell you not only the distribution of the neuropathy, but it can subclassify it into the two major types of the myelinating neuropathy, where the prominent problem is in the myelin sheath, and axonal neuropathies, where the primary problem affects the axons or nerve fibers themselves. And that's a critical juncture in the differential diagnosis. In your approach, what do you like to do in terms of a blood screening test and looking at the evaluation of peripheral neuropathy from a serologic standpoint? What do you like to do as your workup, John? Well, we recommend screening blood tests. And in fact, most of us would recommend a complete blood count, an erythrocyte sedimentation rate or a C-reactive protein, vitamin B12, folate. If the B12 level is low normal, we recommend methylmalonic acid. And we also recommend a comprehensive metabolic panel, particularly blood glucose, renal function, liver function, thyroid function tests, and serum protein electrophoresis with immunofixation. We actually have just published a practice parameter under the aegis of the American Academy of Neurology, the American Association of Neuromuscular Electrodiagnostic Medicine, and the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. And although we recommend screening with those tests, there are really three tests that have the highest yield. And as anyone could probably guess, the number one is a glucose, since diabetes is the most common cause of neuropathy. The others are serum B12 with methylmalonic acid or homocysteine. And then the third test with the highest yield is serum protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, looking for monoclonal gammopathies. How often do you do a glucose tolerance test? We're always talking about and hearing about impaired glucose tolerance and its ability to cause peripheral neuropathy. How often do you go to that level? Well, we're increasingly recognizing, as you're pointing out, that prediabetes can be associated with a distal symmetric polyneuropathy, and especially one that involves small fibers and is painful. We always recommend a fasting serum glucose, and certainly if diabetes or glucose intolerance can be diagnosed just on the basis of either casual or fasting glucose levels, then we stop there. But in patients who have a typical distal symmetric polyneuropathy, particularly one that involves small fibers and is painful, if the routine testing for glucose is normal or questionable, we do recommend moving on to an oral two-hour glucose tolerance test because a significant proportion of those patients will be shown to have impaired glucose tolerance, or what we now call prediabetes. Well, moving on along that same lines, how about the genetic test for neuropathy? When should you start doing genetic tests for neuropathy, and what tests are most useful, John? As with all kinds of medicine, we're recognizing that inherited neuropathies are much more common than we thought. So we certainly recommend genetic testing if there's a suspicion of an inherited neuropathy on the basis of the phenotype of the patient, the way they look. If they have a chronic polyneuropathy with motor and sensory features, and particularly if they have the classic pes cavus or high-arched feet and the classic skinny legs that we used to 
call stork-like legs, and obviously genetic testing is warranted in those cases. But we now know that even a, about a third of cases of inherited neuropathy are what we call sporadic mutations. So if you have a family history, that's obviously a clue. If you have a phenotype that looks like it, that's obviously a clue. But you don't have to have any of those to have a genetic neuropathy. And so my approach is to evaluate the patient first and foremost with the history, and in this case, a good family history too, a neurologic examination and electrodiagnostic test. Then if at the end of that, one is uncertain about the cause or has a high suspicion of an inherited neuropathy, then we do order genetic testing. But the testing should be tailored to the most common types of inherited neuropathy, which are actually Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease Type 1A, which is a duplication of the PMP22 gene. The other more common ones are mutations in Connexin 32, which is an X-linked Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, and in cases where the predominant pathology is axonal, and we haven't found any other reason, we check for mitofusin too. So the most common types are PMP22 duplication and Connexin 32, though. And so those are the two that we would start with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the latest treatments for chronic neuropathic pain and peripheral neuropathy is Dr. John England, professor and head of the Department of Neurology at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. Dr. England, what is the role of a nerve biopsy or a skin biopsy in evaluating peripheral neuropathy? Well, I think first it's important to distinguish that a nerve biopsy and a skin biopsy are different. When we speak of a nerve biopsy, we speak of taking a major sensory nerve, and usually we sample the sural nerve at the back of the ankle. There are certain very clear indications for sural nerve or nerve biopsy in that sense. If one suspects vasculitis, which often presents with a mononeuropathy multiplex, that's a clear very clear indication for nerve biopsy, unless the vasculitis can be diagnosed with other testing in other tissues. If there's a suspicion of amyloid infiltration, tumor infiltration in nerve, inflammatory or infectious causes of neuropathy, then a nerve biopsy is often necessary and, in fact, essential to come up with that diagnosis. But in most cases of neuropathy, most cases being the distal symmetric polyneuropathy, we don't routinely do nerve biopsies because the chance of actually finding the etiology or the answer for the cause of the neuropathy is not very great at that point. In terms of skin biopsy, we use skin biopsy a lot more. First of all, it's much less invasive. It just involves a three-millimeter punch biopsy of skin at the ankle and over the thigh. And what we look at are the intra epidermal nerve fiber density, and the intraepidermal nerve fibers are the C fibers, the small unmyelinated fibers that generally convey pain sensation. And so a person that has a predominantly small fiber sensory neuropathy that can be painful or leave one with numbness in the feet, if we need a confirmation that that actually exists, we often do a skin biopsy, which can show a depletion or a decrease in the density of those small fibers in the skin. John, let's shift gears a little bit and start talking about treatment for neuropathy. 
How do you approach the patient in terms of treatment right off the bat when you're first seeing the patient with a painful peripheral neuropathy? Yes, well, the first thing to do is to go through the complete diagnostic scheme, too. In terms of treating a neuropathy, if one can find a cause of the neuropathy, whether it be diabetes, thyroid deficiency, vitamin deficiencies, or other problems like toxins such as alcohol, then the first thing that one must do is try and treat the underlying disease. So for diabetes, we would obviously recommend tight control of blood glucose. And if it's a vitamin deficiency, replacement of vitamins. If it's toxins, avoidance of that. So above and beyond that, though, we look at other specific causes of neuropathy and try and treat them. If it's an autoimmune demyelinating neuropathy like CIDP, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, we would use immunologically mediated treatments like intravenous immune globulin, steroids, or other immunosuppressive drugs. But once all of that is done, if we don't come up with a clear, focused treatment to actually address the cause of the neuropathy, many of the neuropathies are painful, and we're left with symptomatic treatments for pain. And so that has to be tailored to the patients, but there are several medicines that are available for the treatment of neuropathic pain. I know there are a variety of medications. We talk about the anticonvulsant medications. We talk about antidepressants. Which do you like to use? Well, there are a number of medicines that have been shown in clinical trials to be effective in neuropathic pain. Certainly, the old drugs like the tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline and nortriptyline can be effective for pain. But most of us don't go to them, first of all, now, because if they have a fairly high side effect profile, particularly in older people with the anticholinergic effects. So I think that most of us are moving ahead to sort of the newer generation of drugs, such as the calcium channel modulators like pregabalin, which is sold under the trade name of Lyrica, and gabapentin, which is now a generic drug. So those two drugs work very nicely. And then there are some newer antidepressants, and particularly the antidepressants that have dual serotonin reuptake inhibition and norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. John England, professor and head of the Department of Neurology at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. Dr. England, thank you very much for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you very much. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.